the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. For episode 52, we skip around a few topics, then delve back into the issue of planetary protection. First, long-wave radio. As Marshall Eubanks of Space Initiatives Incorporated will explain, this covers the frequency range from 1 hertz, that is 1 vibration per second, up to 100 megahertz. Turns out you can learn a lot by studying long-wave radio, which can be generated by a lot of natural phenomena. We are acting under an uh, Air Force contract, actually, to set up small communications networks on the moon, and that got us very interested in the long-wavelength radio wave area on the moon. I have two basic takeaways. One is that lunar operations and lunar science are going to benefit from an increased knowledge of what's going on in a low-frequency radio environment. And by low frequency here, I mean anything below about um, 100 megahertz, down to 1 hertz or maybe even below. And the second is that there will be a tight coupling for the foreseeable future between the science and the technology slash communication. Yes, this is the correct slide. It looks simple, but it's not. The moon's sitting out there in the solar wind, and it might seem like, oh, well, it's just sitting there. But in reality, there's quite a lot going down at low frequencies, and we're going to look into some of these things. And so you have the solar wind coming in, you have localized magnetic fields that people have talked about, you have photoelectrons being produced on the surface, you have ground waves potentially, and you have this weird supersonic and subsonic solar wind where the electrons are subsonic and the ions are supersonic. So here are just some basic conditions. Typically, your your densities are somewhere around 10 electrons per cubic centimeter, the surface is going to have photo-disassociated electrons. The UV will hit the surface, pop out electrons. They will want to come right back in because of the charge difference electrostatically. Um, those will have plasma frequencies around 2 megahertz. The other stuff is going to have plasma frequencies around a few kilohertz. The lunar wake will be down around 30 hertz. And then you have the shadowed craters, which are really kind of interesting because they won't support Langmuir waves at all, and so they won't really have a shadow of plasma frequency. So this is sort of our wavelength scenarios here that 
the lunar regolith is transparent below a few hundred megahertz. The Chang'e probes have shown that. We think we could use that for communication to some degree to go through the rocks or through the regolith rather than around it. Manning suggested that there should be ground waves down around a megahertz or two where you have this combination of photoions, photoelectrons, and the regolith itself acting as a waveguide, which is what you need for a ground wave. That seems like a very reasonable supposition. It's never been tested, so there's absolutely no direct knowledge. And so that's science. We need to do science there, and if we can do that science, then we'll be have a tool for looking at the dielectric properties of the moon over very large distances, over long distances. So at down around 24 kilohertz, you have the solar wind reflectivity, and that means that the lunar night, you should have the ability to do something like the ionospheric bounce where you have to wake way far above you, 50,000 kilometers maybe, you're sending radio waves up, and they're coming back down. And then you have the non-neutral plasma. So this is Shackleton Crater, and people, uh, uh, there's horizontal projection through it. People should be familiar with this probably by now. But you have this permanently shadowed region. Well, the, the, the solar wind in normal conditions is going by at maybe 400 kilometers a second. Ion acoustic velocity, the, the thermal velocity, is about 30 kilometers a second. But there's equal partition of energy, and so the electrons are much faster. They're around 1,400, 1,500 kilometers a second. And what that means is the electrons are going to fill this area that's permanently shadowed, but the ions, well, maybe they will and maybe they won't. It looks like there's charging going on down there from these electrons. And it looks like the charging could be significant in the order of hundreds of volts. And... Since plasma waves, Langmuir plasma waves, conventional plasma waves, plasma frequency, these plasma waves depend on having a restoring force or having ions to sort of act as anchors. That's not going to be there, maybe, we think, and so you won't have plasma waves. But there will be magnetic fields, and so you'll have cyclotron waves at around a kilohertz. And I think the cyclotron waves will be the way to, to monitor this stuff from the, um, in the large scale. How might you do this? How might you actually look at this stuff? And we have a penetrometer proposal that we put in, and we think we could do this with penetrometers, where you go right down into the shadowed regions directly, dropped off from a clip slander, maybe from an auto slander, and then you could do this radio wave work right down there in the cold area for maybe a month or so until the batteries run out and find out what's really going on. So with that, I will conclude. Thank you very much. If humans are to settle and explore the moon, then we will need somewhere to live and transport to zip around in. In April of 2021, Jacob Bleacher spoke of rovers and habitats. Jacob is Chief Exploration Scientist in NASA's Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. To do the science that we uh, we want to be doing on the surface of the moon, that requires uh, mobility. We want to be able to get farther and farther away from the spot where we land. Initially, that will start out with our crews landing and, uh, and walking around on the surface during our, uh, our test and the landing. Um, but then we uh, plan to quickly bring online a, uh, an unpressurized rover, a lunar um, terrain vehicle, or LTV. Um, so the objective there, again, is to help and continue to increase the range at which our astronauts can explore. We're looking here at reusable, rechargeable um, vehicle that can last for multiple missions. So we want to be sure we're sending that to the location where we're going to be uh, conducting repeat landing. So unlike the Apollo lander, which was their rover, which was there for only one mission, this would be something that gets reused over and over. And so that's part of that. Uh, we kind of talked about the, uh, the what does sustainable mean? 
sustainable in some regards means having elements that can be reused. And so this is kind of a, one of our first steps in that direction. HLS that can get us, um, land us multiple times. A rovers on the surface that we can take advantage of for multiple missions. Now, eventually, we would like to be able to travel even farther away. And so many of you have been uh, working on concepts over, uh, over the last decade or so, or even longer, about uh, pressurized rovers as well. So uh, an unpressurized rover grants us um, access to moving around a good bit more than we could if we were just walking, but a crew member still has to wear a suit during those EVAs. Whereas a pressurized rover is basically a mobile habitable environment. So now a crew member or two crew members can drive a vehicle like this in a shirt sleeve environment and, uh, and that really extends the range over which we can uh, explore. So again, these notional concepts that we're developing here is our architecture strategy that we're really pointing at, you know, being able to reuse elements as well as extend our range that we can cover, extend the amount of time we can be there and uh, increase the capability throughout that effort. To go along with that, we're also looking at concepts for foundational surface habitats. Uh, so just like uh, we would like to have a, a mobile habitat, we also kind of want to have a base camp, a kind of home when we're on the lunar surface. And so coupling a surface habitat with a mobile habitat uh, really increases the capabilities of what we can do on the surface. And so the point I really want to drive home is, you know, the mobility enables us to see more, to go more places and bring more back. A surface habitat may be used in order to potentially store samples, store hardware, payloads that we want to reuse more than once. If we get to the point where a payload we take to the surface could be used over multiple missions, we'll need places for them to stay, potentially recharge. Um, these are going to be things that we can start taking advantage of on the surface uh, between habitat, a mobile habitat with a pressurized rover and an unpressurized vehicle to, uh, to increase our capability. Um, meanwhile, um, in addition to the initial capabilities at the Gateway, we're looking at elements that will increase our ability to stay longer uh, in orbit. And so this, again, is a really critical part of us understanding longer duration stays uh, in the space environment. So we're considering options for habitation test elements uh, that could be connected with the Gateway and have, as we point out here, up to 15-year lifetimes so we could have multiple missions up at the gateway taking advantage of these as well. Um, as I said earlier, this helps us prepare for the trips we may take to Mars, but it also helps us prepare for longer duration activities in the lunar vicinity. Uh, so again, these are the capabilities that we're considering uh, moving forward to help us prepare uh, for ever increasing um, activities at the, at the moon. Also at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. is Kathy Luders. She is Associate Administrator in the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. She says that the Artemis lunar missions are a way of learning for Mars. In particular, the experiments in ISRU, that is the In-Situ Resource Utilization. You know, we're all we, you know, beginning to evolve and going back to the surface of the moon in a sustainable way. And it's going to take all of us. We're going to have to learn to be able to do that. But most important, it's we're doing this for you, right? We're doing this for our nation. We're doing this for the world because we firmly believe that as we're solving these big problems of how to maintain and develop and run these platforms, we're also making new discoveries and expanding human knowledge 
and pushing our end with our goal of pushing our human presence, that creates another cycle of expanding, making new discoveries, expanding human knowledge. And so these continual cycles are key for us to continue to kind of push and then find benefit here to us here on Earth. Key platforms that we already have in play, obviously International Space Station up and running. You know, we are learning things on the International Space Station today that help us get ready for Gateway and also our lunar surface activities. And the Gateway and the lunar surface activities are going to be teaching us critical things that we need to learn before we can even think about going and making that next step to, to go to Mars. And so there's all these things that we know we need to do to be able to go and conduct a deep space exploration mission, including understanding how to protect our crews, understanding what are the key aspects of capabilities and protections to be able to, how do you design systems to be able to do that hard job of being able to go on a multi-year mission to another planet and back. We also have to figure out how do we really do COM? How do we do our missions? How do we operate our missions to be able to conduct them in a way? We're learning from the science mission director now and from the STMD missions now to be able to help us be able to do that. Steve already talked about perseverance. Look, we took this payload, but has huge, huge, huge implications from a HEO perspective. For us really to, to one of the key things we've got to figure out how to do before we're going to go to Mars and be able to have put boots on Mars, not just on the moon, is for us to really figure out how we can do ISRU, how we can be able to use the resources so that it reduces the, the logistics challenge that we're going to have on that mission. So it's like a perfect example of how we're able to use the other mission directorates missions and, and be able to take that knowledge from that and then be able to apply it to solve a, a big problem in human exploration. Artemis 1, yes, it's our shakedown crews for our crew transportation system, but we to also have science payloads on there because we realize that this will be the first time that we're going to be doing a flyby of the moon in a really, really, really long time. And International Space Station, every day we learn on how to kind of squeeze every ounce of value out of a laboratory and find new ways and honestly create the discussion with new entrants on how to continue to use the, our existing platforms. As we prepare to send humans to Mars, robotic vehicles are already trundling across the barren red landscape. They are equipped with robotic arms that are achieving some amazing science. In September of 2021, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory's Eileen Yinkst told a conference of lunar scientists about these rover arms. So I've been asked to speak about lessons learned about science enabled by robotic arms. There are, just, just to kind of set the stage here, there are many official names for the various arms or appendage-like instruments that have flown uh, to Mars. I'm going to use the term robotic arm. There are many things that an arm can give us that are unique. I've listed three here that I think are three of the most important in facilitating science. Your mileage may vary, but from my experience, these are three of the most important. One is precision placement. That is being able to put your instrument where you want it in a very 
uh, specific and sometimes very, very tiny area. Um, proximity placement, that is being able to bring your instrument to the target uh, rather than having to get it from a distance. And then pointing, that is being able to set your instrument in a multi multitude of different places. And this is all facilitated by the fact that we're talking about uh, instruments with multiple degrees of freedom. So what we've seen from the Mars experience is that the existence, the, able, the ability to be able to use an arm expands the number of instruments that can be used and expands uh, the type of science and engineering related instruments that can be used. That it's kind of difficult to even picture what it would be like without some sort of mobility. Rovers really gave us scientists' feet, as it were. Uh, robotic arms give us kind of, well, arms. They basically provide us with articulation. And so I'll try and expand on each of these precision, proximity, and pointing. So as far as proximity and precision, I know that technically the Sojourner rover didn't have an arm, but it did have an articulation device. And it was really kind of the the first device of which I am aware on Mars that allowed us to move away from the home vehicle to place onto a target. The APXS and the Mossbauer, which was flown, uh, both of these were flown on uh, the Mer Rover Spirit and Opportunity, are both geochemistry instruments. And so they give scientists an in-depth view of the geochemistry of a target, and that's something that until we were able to get kind of right up close to a target was extremely difficult to get, right? Most powers either are very, very large, right? Or you need to bring them right close to the target. So the moss power that you're looking at here can fit in the palm of your hand. And if you have something small enough to be able to fly to Mars, then it probably needs to be very close to the target that you're looking at. And the moss bowers on the MER rovers allowed us to see things like olivine, pyroxene, these are uh, important uh, volcanic minerals, uh, hematite, uh, which is a water-bearing mineral phase, which for obvious reasons is important. If you have a, a rock that contains water in it, that suggests that there was enough water on the surface to, to integrate into those rocks. There are some technologies that can exist without an arm, but they are greatly facilitated by being used with an arm. A camera is just one example. It's the one I happen to be using here. Camera size is controlled by physics. Your lens is as big as it is depending on the resolution that you need. Increased resolution tends to mean increasing the size of your optics, which means increasing the mass of your instrument. But the other way of improving your resolution is to bring the target closer to your camera. So the MER um, uh, microscopic imagers, MSL Molly, the Mars hand lens imager, and Mars 2020 Perseverance Watson all use this fact uh, to, to give us these very, very high resolution, you know, tens of microns per pixel images of the Martian surface. Raman is one of those technologies that can clearly be used you know, without an arm, we have uh, Raman on the SuperCam instrument on uh, Perseverance. But if you are trying to understand the geochemistry of individual grains, if you're trying to understand the chemistry of individual crystals, if they exist, or individual features that are very small, then you're looking at something that really needs to get close to the surface. 
pointing is a little more subtle. We know that, you know, we, we, we picture pointing. We know that many of these landers and rovers have a mast where you can mount various instruments. So Murr had both cameras and it also had a mini test. And that gives you these sort of panoramic views. And so I don't want to denigrate uh, the ability that that articulation allows us to get this sort of contextual view of a site. But an arm has more degrees of freedom than a turning mast. And what that means is an in increase in reach for your instrument and an increase of the view shed of any instruments that are mounted on your arm. All of these uh, images are important in, in one way, and that is they're, they're meant to be diagnostic. And they were not initially part of the proposal for Molly or the ideas that we had when we first flew the rover. So all of these things, all of these images, are ways that we can keep an eye on how the, the uh, instruments and the rover itself are doing. All things that we essentially kind of put together on the fly. So if you are able to do precise pointing, you can do these sorts of long-term science experiments over a number of different SOLs. And so what the arm allows just this one camera, just this one instrument to do, is to take images at a number of different angles, which if you're a geologist, you know is crucial to being able to understand topography, microtopography in this case, and color and so on. But you can see the recessive and the, and the, uh, uh, and the more resistant layer sequence because you're able to move the camera down and look laterally rather than straight down. So the ability to look at all angles is really crucial science that is enabled by an arm. And I'll just point out, yes, I'm an image person, but I suspect this is going to be true for a lot of different instruments as well, that ability to kind of change your angle and look from different ways. The self-portrait is impossible without the arm. There is pictures worth a thousand words. This is simply impossible without um, uh, the multiple degrees of freedom we have with the, with the arm. I'll point out, too, that the science here is actually more than you might think. One of the most difficult things for us on another planet, and this goes for Moon, Mars, doesn't matter where, is understanding scale in the intuitive sense that we humans can do on Earth. And putting objects that we recognize in the scale is really kind of an important part of that analysis. Really quickly, technology that is enabled by an arm. InSight uses its robotic arm primarily to deploy its instruments. That kind of articulation is enabled by an arm. MER had penetrometers and brushes. Uh, MSL in Mars 2020, there's a sampling system. There's the dust removal tool. There's the, I forget what G stands for, dust removal tool. A sampling system, a coring system. All of these things are uh, enabled. They're made possible, basically, by the robotic arms. So a quick summary again, and just you might notice that it's kind of difficult to know what the scale of these robots are. If you've never really, you know, come up close and personal with them, there's nothing in this image really that gives you a strong scale. A trash can would probably be helpful here, but but you can you can see how important scale is something that we instantly pick out. So 
Um, the type of science on Mars that has been accomplished by a robotic arm, that's science that requires or is facilitated by precision or proximity placement, science that requires highly versatile pointing, or science that's facilitated by technology that requires one of the one of the above. So what does that mean for the moon? We have been very fortunate that NASA has agreed to combine the sampler instrument to the Heimdall cameras specifically to maximize the science return on 19C, which is uh, one of the CLIPS missions, rather mellifluously named. And these are Mars examples, but just very quickly, if we had originally had what we had proposed, that would be two fixed mount panoramic cameras that would give us about 120 degree field of view, and then one foot pad mounted imager that gave us about 50 microns per pixel at one point. This is the view that we get with the arm. We have gone down to one panoramic camera, but we get 360 degrees of view. You can get stereo imaging just by doing a, tra a translation of the arm and taking the same sequence of pictures. And we also get on that arm one close range imager, which now gives us 35 microns per pixel at five centimeters distance with choice of target. So we're not stuck with whatever's underneath us. We can pick the optimal science target. And that again is one of the crucial things that you get from an arm. Thanks very much everybody for listening. The Jet Propulsion Laboratories Eileen Yinkst. Now back to the moon where the term PSR refers to a permanently shadowed region. Such regions may house volatile materials things that would vaporise if exposed to the heat of the sun. As part of its unmanned CLIPS program, NASA is paying for a rover called Viper to be sent to a PSR. Now, CLIPS is, at CLPS, is the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. Viper is the acronym for Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. And COSPAR is a scientific organization, the Committee on Space Research. Lisa Pratt is NASA's Planetary Protection Officer. No, she does not man the laser guns to shoot down invading aliens. Rather, her job is not only to ensure that we don't bring harmful microbes to Earth from Mars or comets, but to make sure that we don't contaminate the Moon, Mars or anywhere else that life might exist. Lisa gave this talk in January of 2021. Uh, planetary protection may be a topic that is not familiar to uh, some of the people in this audience, and I'll hope I can uh, give us enough of a quick introduction today that it becomes part of your, your vocabulary and part of what you think about when you uh, look for research opportunities, because there are so many knowledge gaps that are right at that intersection of what we hope to accomplish uh, with our human missions and with our with our science goals as we use the moon as a proving ground to, to get to Mars. But our primary responsibility is to ensure that the United States meets the obligations um, of the Outer Space Treaty. And, and there are three articles that we reference in planetary protection. I've, I've given you just a, a few quick cutout from those articles here that there, there shall be freedom of scientific investigation 
and that we encourage international cooperation to achieve those goals that span uh, that span all uh, all humans and all cultures. And, and Article 9 is important because it says that when we conduct exploration, we do it in a way that we do not harm future exploration and that we do uh, no harm to Earth when we return either materials or astronauts uh, back to the home planet. But it is this do no harm uh, idea that is uh, really at the center of planetary protection and why we worry about both what we carry with us outbound to uh, to destinations that's forward planetary protection and what we carry with us when we uh, when we return to earth which is backward planetary protection and finally um, article 11 states that the activities of non-governmental entities in outer space also require authorization and continuing supervision by the appropriate state party which of course in this case uh, uh, for us at NASA is the United States and so it isn't just uh, the activities of NASA, it is the activities of all U.S. private, commercial, partnerships, and anybody who launches from U.S. facilities. Let's really start with thinking about first the moon, and then we'll talk a little bit about Mars. But it's not just NASA that is rethinking their lunar policies, which really have been unchanged for uh, for some 50 years. We are, are thinking about how uh, particularly the CLIPS contract opportunities give us reasons for rethinking uh, how we monitor and how we worry about what we do at the moon now could prevent us from making a discovery later. Of course, this is a very, a very exciting mission of uh, Viper, which is to begin uh, looking at the volatiles that we uh, believe to be trapped in the uh, the permanently shadowed regions of the moon. But this exciting uh, rover, with its uh, enormous analytical capability, look at volatile uh, volatile molecules, not just uh, not just the organics, but uh, but other volatiles, CO2, uh, CO, and and other molecules as well. It will fly with and be landed by a commercial uh, contract. The, the lander is uh, astro astrobiotic technology of Pittsburgh. And, and given, um, given the science concerns about volatile contamination from exploration, uh, both NASA and COSPAR are trying to address what is the appropriate international mechanism to persuade launch providers to report combustion products during landings and launches. Um, and there has just recently been a deep look at this problem by a new committee of the Space Studies Board at the U.S. National Academies. COSPAR is the recognized um, mechanism that the United Nations uses to decide uh, what constitutes the, the guidelines and what constitutes meeting uh, planetary protection policies and recognize the importance of being particularly careful in and around the PSRs, the permanently shadowed regions, because we don't know right now uh, exactly uh, how the ices are organized. We don't know rather or not those ices are layered in a way that we might have an archive uh, deep into the history of the Earth-Moon system, an archive that we don't uh, we don't have on Earth. And of course, uh, planetary protection addresses not just the search for evidence of life and the origin of life, but planetary protection includes the search for information about prebiotic activities. And that's where that volatile uh, inventory uh, on the moon might be particularly informative.
in addition to thinking about the PSRs, uh, we also uh, called out the importance of understanding uh, the disposition of biological waste uh, that is either left on the lunar surface or in some cases uh, launched into a heliocentric orbit. And it's not just NASA and COSPAR, but uh, really the, the, the global scientific community is very interested in thinking about and protecting the lunar ices as caches of scientific uh, information waiting to be discovered. But it, it is this increasing awareness, uh, both inside national space agencies and outside in the scientific community, and finally in the commercial community, that we need to be careful when we have unknowns, that we uh, we have to take risks to get the information we need to then appropriately develop uh, policies uh, and requirements for how we explore uh, our solar system in a way that we don't uh, inadvertently damage a future discovery. And in a report, finding number one was that the scientific potential of the moon's permanently shadowed ices is important for studies of prebiotic chemical evolution. And this has long been recognized as an area within the scope of both national and international planetary protection. So that finding was certainly consistent with the way our office and with the way COSPAR has been thinking about the current Category 2 classification of lunar missions. With regard to um, the importance of a biological material inventory, which is currently part of the international requirement uh, for uh, organic materials, biologicals uh, being uh, uh, primarily organic uh, chemical materials, the COPP finding that was just released uh, came down uh, very strongly on side uh, that the moon is not susceptible uh, to forward contamination and that biological materials uh, are not necessarily a priority because we, we cannot contaminate the lunar surface with material that can propagate um, or remain viable. So this was, uh, I must say, a, a bit of a surprise in terms of their finding because uh, we believe that, that there is a fundamental knowledge gap about the lethality of the lunar environment, particularly for microbes that are protected in some way by being embedded in human waste. Not only do we not know rather or not uh, material left on the lunar surface, rather it's actually immediately on the surface or might be, uh, might be, might be buried uh, below the surface uh, and it's containerized in various ways, we also know virtually nothing about the preservation of biomarker molecules. And when we think about Mars, it's really important uh, that we learn on the moon um, how the material in our waste might be sterilized in terms of organisms, but might remain a, a very large source of molecular contamination, uh, which uh, again, might not be so important on the moon, but it's a major process we need to understand on Mars as we continue to search uh, for evidence of both past and uh, potentially present day life on Mars. So we need a great deal of research 
um, not only on the release of volatiles uh, associated with launch and landing, uh, but also on the viability of terrestrial spores and other dormant forms of life contained in all the various types of process and unprocessed waves that will be left on the surface as we see more and more activity um, on the moon uh, from uh, other nations and from uh, commercial and private um, activities. The next day, the next decade is an absolutely invaluable opportunity uh, for research um, across all the available um, and developing platforms. Not, uh, you know, we're not, we're no longer limited to just the terrestrial laboratories where there certainly are some types of research that we can, we can do, but also um, in low Earth orbit, um, in higher Earth orbit, but also um, in lunar orbit as the gateway comes together. And then, of course, on the moon's surface, because we need to understand biological leakage, both um, organisms and biomarker molecules from life support systems prior to human exploration of Mars. Life detection on Mars has been a major science goal for a long time, and it uh, the first opportunity to really get down on the surface of Mars and start to look for evidence of life was the Viking spacecraft. And of course, Viking carried with it a number of very interesting and, and sophisticated experiments and instruments. And at the time, although there were these uh, simple chlorinated molecules detected in the Viking life experiments, they were initially interpreted as contaminants from the solutions used to clean the systems. But in 2008, droplets of water or of a liquid on the Phoenix lander led to the recognition that the widespread presence of perchlorate uh, materials on Mars uh, leads to the possibility of significant freezing point depression and the presence of brines uh, at much colder temperatures on Mars and the possibility that that provides a liquid that might be available for certain uh, forms of life to take advantage of. And of course, since then in, in 2018 and 2019, organic molecules have been detected in ancient sedimentary strata on Mars by the Curiosity rover. But there's a major problem with any detection on Mars, and that's are these, are these organic molecules abiotic or biotic in origin? Again, coming back to the moon, the study of lunar organics could provide a calibration of that abiotic background. We really struggle with knowing what is exactly present or not present in carbonaceous meteorites due to the, the problem of anything that reaches Earth uh, being contaminated by the abundant presence um, of life on Earth. So the moon is not only an opportunity for technology testing, um, it's an opportunity to learn in a place where there's a low likelihood of harmful biological contamination. So these questions are, are very much interwoven and planetary protection is working now very closely with Artemis and other parts uh, of the agency to think about again how do we best meet the planetary protection requirements of the Outer Space Treaty? And how do we do the right thing uh, for protecting future human explorers uh, from the possibility of uh, materials remaining viable, altering, or in some other way uh, presenting challenges to the safety and health of our astronauts? NASA's Planetary Protection Officer, Lisa Pratt. 